lots of ground to cover tonight. There's a demon in the story. It gets mentioned by name. There's an amazing miracle. Surprise, surprise. There's Jesus getting ticked off. He actually uh, calls the religious leaders a bunch of snakes. And there's an unforgivable sin, apparently. So let's get right to it. Last week, our friend Bethany Allen mentioned that the stories in chapter 12 of Matthew's biography of Jesus are all kind of situated in this looming shadow of the cross, which is true. Um, If you think about it, the gospel of Matthew has this interesting narrative arc. There's this charismatic and polarizing prophet-teacher guy called Jesus, and he teaches as if he has authority in and of himself, um, rather than kind of appealing to an outside authority to validate his message, as in Rabbi Hillel says this, or Rabbi Shema says this. And that's kind of an unheard of thing to just say, I tell you. But then this same audacious teacher goes around ancient Israel doing the kinds of things that one would do if they did indeed have authority, meaning that he performs miracles, he heals the sick, he even reverses paralysis, he resuscitates dead people, he opens the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind, and he even claims to have the authority to forgive sins. And all of this is stirring up trouble. You can't go around teaching a provocative message to, at some times, thousands of people, bringing dead people back to life, and so on, without generating a certain amount of buzz. And uh, Jesus does attempt to kind of curb the hype. If you read the story, he specifically asks those who witness or benefit from his miracles not to tell people about them. He's trying to keep it under control, at least for a time. But there's only so much that one can do to contain that level of hype, you know, the easiest analogy I could think of is that uh, our community, our Van City community, the one that I'm in, has uh, eight small children and one fetus. Um, and that means that if any couple in our community has one more kid, there will be as many kids as adults in our community. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's going to be the Tabanowskis. They'll be the ones to have children. <laughs> pray, the, pray the blessing of fertility over them. <laughs> they hate it. <laughs> Uh, And because we have this outrageous amount of children, our philosophy for accomplishing simple things, you know, like conversation or prayer or sanity or whatever, is just do the best you can. That's all you can do. Um, And it's a bit like, I don't know, it's a bit like trying to play chess outside during a hurricane. You just do the best you can. Um, And occasionally we strategize and we come up with things to satiate all this mob of children. We'll provide some kind of fun treat for the kids a dessert or, you know, like a sprinkler or a kiddie pool if it's the summer, a movie with popcorn, whatever it might be. But you have to keep that stuff under wraps, man, until you're good and ready to deliver or the impati- all impatient hell breaks loose. Um, but every now and then, one parent <laughs> who will, like, fill in one of their kids ahead of time probably as, like, a bargaining chip, you know, they'll be like, can you please just keep it together? Ten more minutes, because listen, we got ice cream. I'm not supposed to tell you, but we got ice cream, so if you can please just keep it. And then within minutes, there's a riot. All these kids, all eight children, presumably the fetus as well, just ice cream, ice cream. They're going crazy. So the point is that word spreads. There's only so much you can do to contain it. And an incendiary word spreads like wildfire. You can't go around claiming to be a long-awaited king without upsetting whoever is currently king at the time. You can't go around claiming to offer the one true way to God without upsetting the people who fancy themselves experts on exactly that thing. So Matthew has has begun to gather ominous clouds over what was once a really exciting scene of Jesus teaching and caring for people, and now we've begun to realize the more trouble that brews up, something bad is going to happen to Jesus. 
And the last few stories have been about Jesus deliberately generating controversy, and then he kind of wields it like a teaching tool. So earlier in chapter 12, it was about quibbling over the semantics of keeping the Sabbath, if you remember. And now, in tonight's text, Jesus will address accusations that get lobbied at him regarding his power to cast out demons. So let's read Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. You guys good? You ready? Great. Verse 22. Then they brought him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now notice that the text already presupposes that there is a correlation between demonic oppression and physical malady. We've actually seen this again and again and again through Matthew's gospel. Jesus understands that there is a connectedness between the physical and spiritual realms in regards to sickness and deafness and blindness and paralysis and even death. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that the New Testament teaches that if you're sick or if you can't see, that it's because a demon specifically struck you. But what I am saying is that the worldview of Jesus and of the Bible is that spiritual warfare is a very real thing. Over and against the modern post-enlightenment air that we breathe, the worldview of the scriptures takes the spiritual realm just as seriously as the physical realm. And the idea is that both the spiritual and physical realms are populated with very real, very autonomous, personal beings with the power and the ability to affect reality. So sometimes they can actually make people sick or blind. But even if a spiritual being doesn't personally afflict a person uh, with sickness and suffering, sickness and suffering are still in the Bible an evil thing, an outcome of a broken world, fallen world that has been wrecked by an evil entity called the Satan. So in, in God's original design and intent and in his future plan for the cosmos, people will not get sick or suffer from blindness or deafness or what have you. So in this sense, all sickness, all physical ailments, either directly or indirectly, are actually demonic in that way. And Matthew just assumes this when he seamlessly connects this man's blindness and inability to speak with the work of an evil spirit. They're kind of one and the same to him. And notice in the story, the healing Jesus performs is also synonymous with casting out the evil spirit. Jesus engages in spiritual warfare. The man is both freed from the demon and cured of his ailments. And the people react with astonishment. They wonder aloud to one another, hey, could this be the guy that we've been waiting for all this time? Who else would be able to do things like this? Could he be the son of David, they ask. And son of David was this royal title rooted in an Old Testament prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7 in which God says to a man called Nathan, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise from Yahweh had become for the Jewish people a reference to the Messiah, who was a coming king that would restore Israel, usher in a new kingdom that would never come to an end. So the people who hear and see what Jesus is saying and doing, they're filled with a kind of cautious hope. Notice they don't say like, oh my gosh, this is the guy. They're kind of asking one another, hey, could this be him? Now look down at Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. It goes on. But when the Pharisees heard this, meaning when they heard the people saying, could this be the guy, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. 
So the Pharisees, who are this sect of religious leaders, hear these excited, hopeful murmurings in the crowd, and they immediately step up to squelch them out. They're like, no, this isn't the guy. The only reason he can do magic tricks is because he's empowered by evil spirits himself, which is a really serious accusation. You know, I, I used to have this uh, eccentric friend who had this really bold, nutty way of talking to people from time to time. He's a smart guy, PhD, super charismatic and bold and weird. And once he and I were having lunch in Portland and we stepped outside and this, um, a man approached us who was clearly mentally ill. He was kind of like screaming and babbling. He was half naked in the winter. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. And I'm thinking, and, and my friend <laughs> reached out and touched him on the shoulder and said, you have a demon, sir. And they began to pray for this guy that he would be released from demonic oppression. And it was both awesome and outrageous at the same time. And I was thinking, ah, yeah, maybe, I don't know. And at, at any rate, the accusation that someone is compelled by demonic forces is a really serious thing to say, which is why every one of you probably went, what, when you heard that story? And here, that accusation is being leveled at Jesus, and it's not a compassionate thing, it's a slanderous thing. And interestingly, that accusation, I learned this week, lingered way, well after the time of Jesus. We actually have ancient rabbinic writings that mention Jesus by name from around the 3rd through the 5th century that claim that he, and I quote, performed sorcery and incited Jews to engage in idolatry and lead Israel astray. So the effort here was to discredit Jesus and thus stomp out this little flicker of hope in his identity as the Messiah of Israel. They're saying, no, this guy's not the son of David. He has a demon. It's by evil spirits that he's able to do stuff. And interestingly, they actually call that demon by name. They call it Beelzebul. A lot of research has been conducted on the name Beelzebul and its variation, uh, variations, Beelzebub being the most famous version. We don't know exactly where that name comes from or what it means. There's a, a lot of theories and debates and argument over it. But this name shows up in the Old Testament as a name for a pagan god. It shows up many times in rabbinic writings from the 3rd century or, or so on. And around the time of Jesus, we think it had become a title that was basically just used to describe a high-ranking or noteworthy demon or evil spirit, which is why the Pharisees called Beelzebul the prince of demons. Um, in, seventh, in a 17th century encyclopedia of demons, a French painter named Louis Le Breton depicted Beelzebub as an insect because his name is sometimes thought to translate as Lord of the Flies. Uh, that's, that's him, apparently. Um, and Lord of the Flies, of course, is also became the title of William Golding's fantastic 1954 novel in which the demon is actually a minor character. Go read it on your own time. It's great. And uh, not to mention the two-film adaptations. So here, in our text, it's, it's likely just a name that specifies chief demon. It's like a junk drawer term um, for Satan. Or, or there's actually other names for him. I read this week, Belial, Mastema, Azazel, whatever. Point is, the charge from the Pharisees is essentially akin to saying, hey, it's the devil who's helping him do it. And notice, no one is accusing Jesus of being a fraud. No one's saying it's not real, it's a truth. There's no dispute as to whether or not he's actually performing miracles and healings, which is why he gets accused of sorcery even well after his lifetime. Why would anyone attempt to out him as a fraud when there were so many people around who would just step up and say, no, that's not true. We saw it, and this guy couldn't walk, and now he can, or whatever. So it seems evident that the authenticity of his work speaks for itself. So the more practical recourse for the Pharisees is to attack the credibility of the source from which Jesus draws the power that he obviously has. Clearly he has power, but how? And they realize, well, we can't say it's from God, so that leaves us with basically one other option. Yeah, he's doing something really cool, but he's not who he says he is. He's in league with someone else. 
And it amazes me that this type of identity redirection still happens all the time, only now it more often sounds like this. Yeah, Jesus had some cool stuff to say, but he was basically just a good teacher. Or yeah, he did some really cool things, but he's not who he says he is. And listen, both statements are accusations of the highest severity because they are designed to drain faith in the, who, in the truth of who Jesus really is. And as archaic and as fire and brimstone as it sounds, when I hear, you know, like famous philanthropists and celebrities and professors argue, yeah, Jesus was a really interesting teacher, he was a good moralist, he was a philosopher, but really nothing more than that. I hear it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons, because it's essentially saying he's not who he says he is. So, how will Jesus respond to this attack? Look down at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So, just as Jesus did previously in his debate over the Sabbath, if you remember, he's again employing common sense logic as his defense. He's basically saying, if a demon's purpose is to do evil, how much sense does it make for a demon to drive evil out? Now, there is a small caveat here. There is some precedence in both the Bible and in the history of the church when demons have been believed to perform, uh, quote-unquote, good miracles and healings, but with malicious intent. But historically, there's always been a fairly simple rubric with which to resolve that possible conflict. It's basically, is the miraculous healing conducted in such a way as to draw attention to or away from Jesus and to who Jesus truly is? So Jesus goes on in verse 27, If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So exorcisms in the ancient Near East weren't exactly an unheard of phenomenon. We've already talked about this a bit. Jesus performs exorcism. That's not in in and of itself noteworthy, but the way that Jesus performs them, uh, Matthew tells us, with a single word rather than this lengthy, verbose procedure, is very different indeed. So Jesus, knowing the Pharisees, knowing the religious leaders, they're no strangers to exorcism, he redirects the charge and the question back at them and says, well, how do you guys do it? How do you drive out demons? Where does your power come from? Because either way, you will have to answer for it as well. He goes on, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this is actually the central verse in tonight's story. It taps into this incredible concept that in theology is called inaugurated eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying that this idea that the kingdom of God is both a present and a future reality. It's now, but it's also not yet. And this story is a fantastic example of that dichotomy in action. When someone who was deaf is healed and can hear again, That's God's kingdom breaking into our reality right here, right now. When evil is driven back and done away with, when orphaned or unwanted children are adopted into loving families, when the poor and hungry are fed, when those with little find provision in the generosity of those who have much, what else can we call that but the kingdom of God come among us? But on the other hand, when Jesus is accused of not being who he claims to be, when the promising flicker of faith is smothered by cynicism and by disbelief. The kingdom is clearly not here, not yet anyway, not all the way. And so we live smack dab in the middle of that ongoing tension, the now and the not yet. 
And here Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you guys are missing it. If I am who I say I am, then the kingdom is here. The moment you've been waiting for has begun. It has come among you right now. And he goes on, verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now, hang on for a minute, because this really weird analogy, so often lost on a great many readers, is actually one of the coolest quotations from Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. In context, uh, this rebuttal follows from the previous logic-based arguments, you know, a kingdom or household divided against itself will fall fall apart. Now Jesus is saying, no one can rob a strong man unless he does something about the strong man himself. And remember, all of this is about driving out demons. Now, the New Testament features a very clear, very prevalent motif about Jesus' battle against Satan. Of the devil's power and authority, 1 John says this, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Later, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And these are just a couple of examples we could go on for quite a bit, but we won't for the sake of time. The point is that Jesus understood his mission as one of cosmic warfare against the devil. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, describes the healing work of Jesus, what we just read about, this way. We know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and, listen, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Or how about this one, one of my favorites from 1 John, the one who does what is sinful is the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, obviously, these followers of Jesus didn't invent this understanding of Jesus' battle with the devil. They learned it from Jesus himself. So Jesus himself understood that, in the words of John, the reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Thus, in the metaphor, the strong man is the powerful and authoritative God of this age, the Satan. And Jesus himself is the disruptor. He's the rebel. He has infiltrated the devil's dominion, and he plans to take everything from him. And remember, this is after an exorcism. So what Jesus is stealing from the devil is us. He's taking us back from the devil's clutches. And this actually recalls imagery from the prophetic writing of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Look at this. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what Yahweh says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. How awesome is that? But in order to do that, Jesus has to deal with the strong man, the devil himself. To me, it's almost like spiritual warfare trash talk. He's like, yeah, the devil's strong, so what? I'll tie him up and I'll take all the stuff right from under his nose. All the people and things that he's taken from us, I'll just steal them right back. So let's read on, verse 30. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Wow. Talk about being direct. Whoever is not with me is against me. Sit, sit with that for a second and consider the seriousness of that statement. One scholar I read this week wrote it this way, neutrality to Jesus is hostility toward him. And I thought, whoa, 
In that line, um, whoever does not gather with me scatters is a reference to what is sometimes called evangelism or, you know, in plain talk, inviting other people to know and follow Jesus, meaning that same intense juxtaposition for or against is now applied to the mission of God's people. If you're not gathering people to follow Jesus, you're essentially scattering them away from Jesus. Wow, and things are about to get even more intense. Keep reading, verse 31. So I tell you, Jesus says to the Pharisees, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there's obviously nothing noteworthy there. Let's just keep moving on. Oh, okay, I had prepared for no one to laugh at that, but great, thank you. Um, what, what, the heck, what the heck is all this unforgivable sin stuff about? Well, note that Jesus begins this controversial statement with something that's really incredible when he says, don't miss this, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Meaning Jesus begins with the wideness of God's mercy, God's incredible patience and willingness to work with people in their brokenness, every kind of of brokenness. But he adds to that this really sobering warning when he says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, what does that mean exactly? One scholar puts it really well when he writes this, the identification of the blasphemy against the Spirit has vexed many. <laughs> the correct pastoral approach has always been, if you are worried that you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you have not. For the spirit of this sin is an unhurried adamancy it is an impetience, the unwillingness to repent, that is at the root of the unforgivable sin. It's not careless acts, it is a hardened state. So in this sense, to blaspheme the Spirit is essentially to solidify oneself in obstinate rejection of Jesus again and again and again. N.T. Wright also says it really well when he writes this, Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring, that must be the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven, you can't be, because you have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. Last year, um, I hesitate to use this example because I, I know it's a loaded one, but it came to my mind. Um, Donald Trump was celebrating the rapport that he has with American evangelicals, and he was asked if he had ever asked God for forgiveness. And he, you know, very controversially answered, no, I don't like to ask for forgiveness. And political divisiveness aside, I just remember sitting in that and being like, whoa, how chilling, the, the commitment to such a thing. And what a scary thing to, to stay there. Uh, earlier this week, I was actually listening to this album, a kind of conceptual operatic thing. And in the album's clo closing song, the narrating character sings this line, um, I've got an angel in the lobby. He's waiting to put me in line. And he says, uh, I won't ask for forgiveness. My faith has run dry. And I thought, man, that kind of firm and final steadiness that looks into the eyes of God, who sends his spirit as a helper to all who would become apprentices of Jesus and says, no, never, I will not. And they keep saying it and they keep saying it all the way to the grave. That is the blasphemy against the spirit. 
And notice, this isn't the type of thing that just happens. It's not something that you can just kind of do in a moment of foolishness. It is, as uh, Dale Bruner said, a hardened state of being. And this is why Jesus, if you notice, he doesn't actually accuse the Pharisees of committing the unforgivable sin. He simply explains the stakes as, I would argue, a gracious warning for them, meaning he's saying, if you continue down this road, if you become frozen in your unwillingness to receive this free gift of truth, then eventually there will be no turning back. And in this sense, this warning certainly sounds like it's among the most intense, but in essence, it's, it's not terribly different from all of Jesus' many warnings about judgment. In other words, to reject Jesus is a decision with dire consequences. All right, let's keep reading. We're getting there. Verse 33 Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. So here, Matthew is hearkening back to Jesus' core teachings that are compiled in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, he utilized that same exact metaphor about trees and fruit, the idea being that authentic goodness is evidenced by a life of outward action. It's not just an inward disposition. You don't just kind of feel Jesus' fuzzies in your heart and be a disciple of Jesus. So that to say, you will know a disciple of Jesus by examining them for a life that reveals a love for God and a love for other people. On the other hand, when a life indicates an absence of love for God, an absence of love for other people, it's like a tree that, that bears no fruit or bears rotten fruit, and such a person might actually not be a disciple of Jesus at all. And now Jesus is about to get even more intense. Look down at verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Yikes. Now, remember, in context, this has to do with the Pharisees deliberately disparaging these, the burgeoning faith of some would-be apprentices of Jesus. Jesus performs a miracle, he drives out a demon, he heals deafness, and a spark of hope flickers amongst the bystanders. They're like, oh, could this be the son of David? And along come the Pharisees to not only stamp it out, but to deny that Jesus' true identity is who, that Jesus is who he claims to be with the most serious of insults. He's in league with the devil and all that. And so Jesus gets pretty stern. He calls them a bunch of snakes, and he tells them, hey, listen, you don't know how serious the things you say really are to keep going on like this and how dangerous that is, not just because of the effect you have on other people, but the effect that you have on your own soul. You could be solidified in your callous disbelief, and then ultimately you'll never want to be forgiven, and you will be held responsible for the things that you say, which, of course, remains more than a little sobering some 2,000 years later. All right, take a deep breath. That's the whole text. Where does this leave all of us for this evening before we go back to the tables for the rest of communion and worship? What are we supposed to do with all this? You know, like so many of Jesus' most stark teachings, there's a twofold dynamic of both warning and of hope. And really, that's why this idea of judgment, um, at least in the scriptures, is uh, the both and. It is the warning and the hope all the time. For us, for us, judgment is this big, loaded, often unseemly word, you know, but in the Bible, judgment is about finally making right all that is wrong in the world. 
And the majority of human beings would agree that all is not right in the world. Most of us, when we see the poor and the starving, when we see mental illness, when we see child abuse or racism or sexism or misogyny or slavery or oppression, we think something deep-seated in us thinks, man, that isn't right. So the biblical promise that Jesus will put an end to those things is, of course, hope. Yes, evil runs amok, at least at the moment, but it is being pushed back by the kingdom of God in the here and now, and one day it will be brought to an end. That's very good news. And the news actually gets better because throughout the entire story of the Bible, it's abundantly clear that God's passionate, deep-seated desire is to eliminate evil, yes, but to also rescue those who are victimized by evil and to also rescue those who do evil meaning God wants to end child abuse forever. Yes, He wants to rescue and redeem those who have been abused, but God also wants to rescue and redeem the abusers themselves. His compassion is nearly incomprehensible. But this God is uninterested in coercing those that He wants to rescue. He intervenes, He acts, He influences, He pleads in a myriad of different ways. He involves Himself absolutely, but He will not force them. He won't pull all the strings. So, inevitably, some who do evil would rather not be rescued, let alone redeemed. And yet, God is still coming to eradicate evil. That day is on the horizon. And this turns potentially good news into very sobering, very scary news for those who stare into the beautiful compassion of Jesus and knowingly say again and again and again, I will not have it. So as for you and I, aren't we sometimes one or the other? Aren't we sometimes the person who says yes to the kingdom, yes to the way of Jesus? And then often we are that person who says, no, I will not have it. Sometimes both in one day, sometimes both in a single moment, a wrestle of emotions all the time. Um, in his beautiful novel, A Monster Calls, Patrick Ness writes this, Humans are complicated beasts. How can a queen be both a good witch and a bad witch? How can a prince be a murderer and a savior? How can an apothecary be evil-tempered but right-thinking? How can a parson be wrong-thinking but good-hearted? How can an invisible man make themselves more lonely by being seen. Because of this, because of this horrible dichotomy that's constantly waging war inside of us, Jesus never requires our idea of perfection. He calls us to a standard of wholeness, to maturity, to completion. Yes, absolutely. But having become human himself, Jesus understands the complicated tangle of our humanity. And yet, he is acutely, even painfully aware of the inherent danger of settling into our shadow side and staying there. And that tiptoeing toward darkness is often evidenced by the things that we say. Matthew scholar R.T. France says this, The thought is, again, of bringing to light what is in the secret place, so that a person's words or deeds reveal what is really important to them, and so their true character. Now, to be fair, I doubt many of us are strutting about accusing Jesus of doing miracles via the power of a demon. Maybe you do that, and if so, repent, you know. Uh, and yet, we, like the bystanders in tonight's story, uh, are surrounded by a world that looks upon Jesus, sneers, and says, He is not who He says He is. And many of these naysayers are not the, you know, science professors or whatever caricatures, you know, the hostile humanists or the axe-grinding atheists, whatever. Many of them today are like spiritual people, you know, they're the enlightened 
post-evangelicals or whatever you want to call them. They're those free-thinking heroes who wised up and they left church behind and now they blog about it, you know. And with a smile and a tweet or a podcast or whatever, they say the same old thing. Yeah, Jesus is so awesome, so cool. Some of his teachings are amazing, but God? No. King of the universe? No. And I imagine Jesus, compassionate, pleading, but with warning in his voice, be careful. Do not settle into the shadow. You know, honestly, to end tonight, I, I went back and forth with this text for a few days because it presents to us many questions we've, we've been asking in different ways all throughout the series of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We've talked a ton about, is Jesus who he says he is? Um, we, we've talked about, uh, you know, the hope that Jesus is going to triumph over evil, all that stuff. So I looked and I looked again until one phrase cut through the familiarity and it is perhaps fittingly Jesus' final words in this text. Listen to these one more time. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Later, the New Testament writers pick up on this motif of how dangerous our words can become, and they elaborate further calling the tongue a restless, untamable evil. Look at this one passage from James 3. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Um, this is really conflicting for me personally. I uh, like words very much. I like the way they fit together in a sentence. For as long as I can remember, I've enjoyed them, um, reading them on a page, the way that they sound when, when people talk. And for as long as I can remember, I have understood that, that words can be deeply powerful to do very good things and to do evil things. And, you know, if you have kids, you've seen already that they can utilize that. As soon as they understand that their words have power, they use it all the time. Um, and Jesus says that both of those possibilities, the, the, to do good or to do evil, both of them are irrevocably tethered to what's inside of us. And there have been times, uh, to be honest with you guys, in my own life, more than I'd like to admit, in which I found myself willing and able, frankly, to lower a pail into the deep reservoir of myself and find in it selfishness and petty woundedness and anger or even hatred and to draw up from it words to use, words meant to injure or even destroy people, frankly. Um, and I thought this week about how often we've seen that in the media or with, you know, uh, people that are noteworthy or famous. I thought of in, how in 2006, um, a beloved sitcom star, Michael Richards, who played Cosmo Kramer in Seinfeld, he was uh, performing stand-up comedy. I'm sure you heard the story, uh, set in Hollywood, California, and a group of noisy hecklers began to distract and upset him. And suddenly, um, Richards became unhinged. He started shouting racial slurs and violent threats before this stunned and disgusted crowd. And the incident was widely reported. The video circulated online, do doing presumably irreparable damage to his career. 
And of that incident, he later said this, and I quote, Everyone that was there took the brunt of that anger and hate and rage, and I'm concerned about more anger and hate and rage. I'm not a racist, and yet it came through. It fired out of me. A few years later, um, he actually summarized the horror well. He was playing himself on an episode of another sitcom, and in it, he becomes enraged with his other character, and this other character, and in an obvious reference to the incident, he shouts, it's meant as a joke, but it's actually pretty profound. He shouts, if only there were a horrible name that I could call you that would make you as angry as I am now. And I thought, man, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Here's that same line from a few different translations of that verse. For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You know, so often I've been in arguments with my wife Abby or with a close friend, and I will find in myself the ability to articulate something dreadful or cruel or dark or evil. And I, th I thought this week, man, from the overflow of those things in my own heart. And we use these apologetic expressions to whisk them away, you know, when the embers have cooled and we calm down. We say things like, oh, I didn't mean that. I was just upset. And there's, there's an element of truth to that, or at least there can be, but it remains that that stuff comes from somewhere. And maybe you're less of an arguing type. You're not like me. You don't try to use words to destroy someone. But how do you talk about other people when they aren't around, you know? Or, or do you say things about them that you would never say in their presence or that you would never say with kindness and compassion? Or maybe that's not you either. Maybe you're not the gossiping type but do you use your words to do good? I remember a few months ago, I was having coffee with someone from Van City, and he was telling me about how frustrated he's become with his group of friends and the way that they talk. And it wasn't necessarily mean-spirited. He just said, man, we're, we're always so sarcastic. Everything is a joke, and nothing is ever sincere. You guys know what that's like? Do you have friends that operate in that realm as well? When you, you create an air of insincerity so thick, you feel like you no longer know how to say anything sincere or kind or uplifting. Or if you try, you have to immediately bury it under a joke. Um, so tonight, as we end, I just want to I invite you guys, all of us, to draw your mind backward to a recent argument that you had with someone that you know. Think of the way um, that you talk about other people when they're not in the room, especially if you're frustrated with them or there's conflict going on with you or with someone else. Or think of how often you use the power of your words to lift others up or adversely how uh, scarce that trait is in your own life. And ask yourself where those things come from. If what you find upsets you, if you go back in your memory and you see an argument or a moment of gossip, or a moment where you didn't say the kind thing you were thinking? Does that represent like a momentary lapse in judgment, a foolish slip of the tongue, or is it actually something deeper, something in your heart that seethed up and boiled over? Because, you know, for all of us, there's a tremendous seriousness, a profound weight to our words. And these words are so often indicative of, of what's inside us. And as our teacher and our king, Jesus wants to transform us into the kind of people who do indeed speak from the overflow of the heart. That is an inevitability. But he wants us to become the kind of people for whom that overflow is kindness and compassion 
and mercy and encouragement and restoration. And I'm sure if you bring to mind someone you know who talks that way naturally, you would probably argue it's because that's the way that they are. They talk with kindness because they're a kind person. They talk with compassion because they are, by nature, compassionate. That's what Jesus wants for all of his apprentices. He wants us to be the type of people who can ask themselves, man, are, are there kind words constantly on my lips? And then to answer, yes, by the grace of God, there are. So often we, we talk about kindness as if it's this awkward thing, you know? We tell stories about getting compliments. This weirdo complimented me. It was so weird. They were like, you're so great. And I was like, get out of my face. Or maybe I'm the only one who does that. I don't know. I just revealed something about myself. Or, you know, we shy away from kindness uh, under the pretense of insecurity. I wanted to say this nice thing, but I just got awkward. So, I, you know, whatever it was. Um, and yet, you know, it, it troubles me, and I am speaking for myself here and, and maybe some of you guys, but it troubles me how often I show no inhibition to fire back in disagreement or to gossip about someone who's not around or to disparage, you know, a challenging person in our family, extended family or community or circle of friends or whatever it might be. So tonight I want to invite us to make space to invite God's Spirit to search that wellspring of our hearts and to bring to mind the words from which... They have overflown. All of this in the ongoing pursuit of our beloved Jesus. Because he pleads, even with his greatest opponent, his greatest opponents, please do not become hardened in your unwillingness to see the truth. So may we seek out and deal with any part of us, hidden or in plain sight, that does not know the truth and allow Jesus to deal with it by his spirit in the kind and compassionate and gentle way that he does. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. With that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak.